Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 30th of April 1924 and the ocean liner Ormond is ready to set sail for England from Sydney. Aboard is the Australian Olympic team, bound for the Paris Games. This includes Boy Charlton, who will win gold, silver and bronze in swimming events. But there's a woman on board who's destined to bring back a far rarer prize. Not gold, silver or bronze, but steel, fashioned into a jewellery box. It'll be a one of a kind, made from the first roll of steel cast for the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The woman who'll be given this souvenir Kathleen Muriel Butler, now 33 years old, is on the Ormond, bound for London, where she's to be in charge of everything relating to the contract with Dorman Long for the construction of the bridge. Kathleen has now been working on this project for 12 years, more than one third of her life, and she's been entrusted with a huge responsibility. But her boss, John Bradfield, has every faith in her. Despite the naysayers who believe a woman isn't equal to such a task, he knows that Kathleen Butler knows more about the Sydney Harbour Bridge than anyone. So, with her staff of three junior male engineers, Kathleen is today sailing up the harbour on the Ormond. What does she think as the ship leaves this autumn day? We don't know, but it's a good bet Kathleen is looking back the whole way to the heads, envisaging just what it will be like when the steel arch spans the harbour linking the city's south and north shores, and giving an Australian icon to the world. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Kathleen Butler, Mother of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In early May, a few days after leaving Sydney, the Ormond was leaving Australian waters. What Kathleen Butler wrote of this big moment fits with the rest of her accounts in the Sydney Mail. She said she, quote, saw the coastline near Fremantle fade miles away into the blue horizon as we journeyed on our way to check all drawings, calculations, etc. without delay. 
a touch of lyricism, followed by mission focus, and always with a sense of the deadline. Kathleen was now on a salary of £500 per year, which was more than four times what she'd been earning a few years back. She'd get £12 a week expenses too, with another £20 for incidentals on her ocean journey. All up, Kathleen would be away for about eight months. In a report that included these details of her salary, which would have made Kathleen one of the highest paid women in Australia, the Australasian newspaper said her recent prominence had caused Sydney women to take notice of this professional in their midst. Quote, The sex has been mightily interested in Miss Butler, but possibly because she is a busy young woman whose time was fully taken up with her official duties, there was no public recognition of her success by the various organisations of ladies in Sydney. John Bradfield wasn't due to arrive in London until September, so for three months Kathleen would be the bridge boss. As she wrote, quote, I, as his confidential secretary, was empowered to carry on all correspondence and discussions with Messrs. Dorman Long and Company, the contractors, and to have charge of the office which I opened. Kathleen opened that office on the 16th of June in the Central Buildings Westminster, in the shadow of Westminster Abbey and Parliament House. London newspaper The Evening Standard devoted a column to her. It said she had already done remarkable work in connection with the bridge. Now she was, quote, attending to most difficult and technical questions in regard to the contract and dealing with a massive correspondence that comes into her office daily. But in keeping with the tone of reporting that had to emphasise her femininity, Kathleen Butler was, quote, a typical out-of-doors Australian girl, and she will tell you gaily that when her work is over, she indulges in her favourite vices, surf bathing, dancing and lawn tennis. And for a touch of British condescension, the Evening Standard added, her career, even in a young country where names are made more easily than in an older and more settled community, has been an amazing and romantic one. While Sydney's feminists hadn't had a chance to celebrate Kathleen, she was showered with praise by their sisters in London. She was welcomed by the Women's Engineering Society, who heralded her achievements in a full-page article titled An Australian Pioneer in their publication, The Woman Engineer. The International Woman Suffrage News was to praise her, quote, foresight, tact and marked ability. Kathleen also found her portrait on the cover of The Vote, the publication of The Women's Freedom League, under the headline, An Australian Woman Pioneer. It was in the accompanying article that Kathleen paid tribute to her late mother Annie, quote, who was remarkably clever at drawing plans of houses and supervising buildings. Despite the evening standard's emphasis on Kathleen's leisure pursuits, she of course didn't have much time for sightseeing. But she loved her visit to Wembley, where she heard a recital of Carolyn music on a specially erected peal of 33 bells. That Kathleen would adore such a sight and sound perhaps wasn't surprising. The perfect welding of musicality and beauty with metallurgy and engineering. By the time John Bradfield arrived in September, Kathleen and her team had been there three months. Together, they visited the works of Dorman Long and Company at Middlesbrough. Kathleen's articles for the Sydney Mail didn't stint on scientific information. Her description of their visit to the Dorman Long plant was no different. It was truly at a nuts and bolts level but one that, in time, would become part of the Sydney Harbour Bridge legend as men hammered these spikes red-hot and at dizzying heights. Here's a quote from her feature. 
Most of the rivets used in the fabrication of the main arch span of the bridge will be one and one quarter inch in diameter and will have grips up to nine and a half inches, the grip being the total thickness of plates and angles held together by the rivet when snapped. In a work requiring some two and a half million rivets, every precaution must be taken to ensure that rivets will completely fill the holes drilled in the steel plates and angles and that the riveting is as perfect as is humanly possible. To ensure perfect field riveting, many experiments have been made at the Britannia Works to determine the most effective shape of rivet and the best method of driving them in the field. Kathleen went on to list the chemical analysis of the first steel cast and tensile strengths. Even she allowed that she might be getting into the weeds a little for the Sydney Mail's audience. Quote, All this may be unintelligible to the ordinary reader. For general interest, she added that Dorman Long had made some interesting items from that first steel cast for the bridge. There was a photo of these with her article. The caption read, Souvenirs made from the first plate of steel for the bridge. Quote, Jewel case, paper knife, paperweight and ashtray. Printed inside the lid of the jewel case is this inscription. Dorman Long & Co. Limited, Souvenir of Visit, October 8, 1924. Made from the first plate of silicon steel rolled at Red Car Works for Sydney Bridge. In the century to come, there would be countless millions of bridge souvenirs, from snow domes and tea towels to silver spoons and eyeglasses. Kathleen Butler was given the first ever souvenir produced, produced from the first steel that would make the Sydney Harbour Bridge. In November, Bradfield, Kathleen and their staff sailed to New York, where they inspected numerous bridges. They went to Philadelphia, where they saw a new bridge being built, Kathleen soaking up all the details of its design and construction. Up in Montreal, they met the engineer building the Quebec Bridge. And in Quebec, Kathleen took a sleigh ride through the snow. Likely, this was a lot of fun, but perhaps not as much fun as Niagara Falls, where she delighted in the marvellous Honeymoon Arch Bridge across the gorge and took a lift down under the Horseshoe Falls. The party sailed from Vancouver on the Makura on the 17th of December and arrived in Sydney on the 10th of January 1925. On his return, Bradfield told the press the bridge would be finished on schedule. But the Sunday Times report gave an insight into Kathleen's ease in such situations and the command of details she had available off the top of her head. This article said, quote, Dr. Bradfield had very little to say about his trip. While in America, they visited many of the bridges, and Miss Butler, who knows a great deal about bridges, took a great interest in them in the United States and Canada. Speaking about the new Philadelphia Bridge, which is under construction, she said, In Philadelphia, I saw the new suspension bridge of 1,750 feet span being constructed. The cables were spun at the date of our visit, November 24. Each cable will consist of 61 strands of 305 wires each, or 18,666 wires in each cable. Each wire had an ultimate strength of 223,000 pounds per square inch. There was a fair bit more to her quote, but you get the picture. When Kathleen said she knew specifications by heart, it didn't seem to be an exaggeration in the slightest. On the night of Saturday, the 24th of January, Kathleen got a big welcome from her family at the Imperial Hotel in Lithgow, now run by one of her brothers. Everyone was there except for one brother, who, following in Dad's footsteps, was now station master at Narromine. Kathleen's dear old dad, William, now 78, was living at the hotel. He wasn't in the best of health, but they still had fun. The Lithgow Mercury reported, It was a real homely party, while the program of harmony, refreshments and other amusements engaged in filled every minute till nearly midnight. 
asked to speak, Kathleen said it was a thrilling sensation to be back in dear Australia. The Mercury paraphrased her. She had kept her eyes open and her senses alert while in England, but she could truthfully say, although England was beautiful in many respects, the bright sunshine of the South always appealed to the Australian. Kathleen thanked everyone for coming and said she was returning to Sydney on Monday, where on Tuesday she'd, quote, enter in earnest on the six years job of constructing the Harbour Bridge. The party dispersed, but not before singing Old Lang Syne. This had to be a bittersweet memory for Kathleen. How often she got to Lithgow after that isn't known. Given how busy she was, likely it wasn't often or at all. On the 14th of January 1925, her dad passed away at the Imperial Hotel. Kathleen Butler had returned to Australia having done a magnificent job. But while she was celebrated, she still lived and worked in a society where there were severe expectations and limitations placed on women. There was a sense of this in a Freeman's Journal article that appeared less than a week after her welcome home in Lithgow. It called her the Lady of the Bridge and said, quote, A few years ago, the public would have scoffed at the idea of a mere woman playing any part in connection with the building of a bridge which, when completed, will be the world's greatest bridge. So far, so good. But for this writer, what was really pleasing was that this mere woman hadn't forgotten how to be a mere woman. She was, quote, As conversant with engineering as she is with the domestic arts of cooking and dressmaking, She can talk enthusiastically on suspension and cantilever, but can speak even more so on all those feminine articles of apparel known as chiffons. The writer continued, After several years of contact with iron, steel and concrete, she has never become so cemented in her unusual work to lose interest in her vanity case. This appeared on the page entitled For Matrons and Maids, Little Talks Over Teacups. Presumably, it was written by a woman. The sentiment was that it was permissible for Kathleen to undertake such great and important work, so long as she didn't forget her greater and more important work, cooking, sewing, fashion and makeup. There would be other such backhanded compliments from other women's pages. At least, that wasn't the sentiment when Kathleen was guest of honour at a luncheon held at Farmer's Department Store by the Professional Women Workers Association. Treating this seriously, the evening news headlined its report, The Strong Sex, Exploded Theory. The lunch was attended by prominent Sydney feminists. One of these leaders, Grace Scobie, told the crowd, quote, The unique position which Miss Kathleen Butler holds in Sydney today is owing to the fact that Dr Bradfield dares to place a woman in a position of trust where merit, capacity and initiative counts. Another speaker, Jamison Williams, said that too much emphasis was placed on gender in public life and there should be, quote, a quality of money power and influence. She said, We don't want sentimental tosh about man's protecting arm. This is an exploded theory. We want men like Dr. Bradfield to say she has brains and ability and we will put her where she will have a chance to show her powers. Jamison Williams concluded, We don't want a man's world and we don't want a woman's world, but we want a human world. More testimonials followed, and then Kathleen spoke. The evening news described what she had to say respectfully. Quote, Miss Butler gave an interesting account of her appointment to her present position, and of the knowledge of engineering she acquired at the steelworks at Lithgow, which helped her with the construction of the bridge. She also gave a description of the building of the Underground Railway. But condescension and anxiety abounded in the bulletin's account in its women's letter page. Kathleen was reduced to Bradfield's, quote, faithful scribe who has kept her tablets bright 
and her typewriter running smooth for 10 years that the harbour might be spanned from shore to shore. The bulletin reduced her to a typist, except that was when she had the temerity to talk like a man about her profession. Then Kathleen became such a bore that your mind might wander to her stylistic colour choices. Quote, Kathleen, who was a tall, capable young woman with wide-apart, serious eyes, dressed her russet colouring in the same shades, and, in place of a speech, read something very like a bridge specification to the defenceless listeners. Later, in August, reporting on a ball, the bulletin would say, quote, Kathleen Butler danced just as well as if she didn't know a cantilever from a feather duster. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Of course, these attitudes wouldn't have been confined to sneering women's pages and Kathleen would have been in for criticism and incredulity wherever she went. In such an atmosphere, it's no wonder that when she gave an interview to The Courier in Queensland in September 1925, Kathleen said, quote, Certainly, there are not many women in similar positions, but then so very few women are interested in such work. What remained unspoken was that there were very few women interested in such work because there was almost nothing in terms of encouragement and opportunity. It was an uphill battle that would continue to be fought for the next century and beyond. In this interview with The Courier, Kathleen explained how she'd come up and how Bradfield had encouraged her. Unlike The Bulletin, The Courier explained some of what was involved in her job to its readers. Kathleen, it said, had talked of the industrial conditions and information regarding supplies on which to base tenders, which she had to be conversant with when interviewing the representatives of the six firms which submitted tenders for the bridge. The article continued... As secretary, Miss Butler was present at all interviews relating to tenders and finally assisted in checking the plans and calculations submitted. Kathleen said to them, quote, The building of such a bridge is a big business proposition, as well as a colossal engineering feat. The Sydney Harbour Bridge was also a Butler family affair. William and Annie hadn't raised just one STEM champion, but two. Kathleen's younger brother Roger had been taken on by Bradfield as resident engineer but the siblings wouldn't be on the project together long. The Queensland newspapers had noted that Kathleen and her sister Gladys were on holiday to visit station homes. Whether Kathleen already knew Morris Haggerty then or met him on this trip isn't known. Morris was six years younger than Kathleen and the owner of Strathlee Station, a sheep and cattle property near Cunnamulla in Queensland, and by the start of 1927 they were engaged to be married. Their grandson, Morris Sloan, told me the story of his grandfather's proposal. Apparently, this grazier had a great opera voice, and so he went down on one knee to sing his entreaty to Kathleen Butler. From big bridge to big gesture, this was a big decision for Kathleen. If she said yes to Morris, she was saying no to her career. A woman could be employed by the public service in New South Wales until she married, then she had to resign, or retire, as the papers put it. Kathleen said yes to Morris. Why? 
Love, perhaps. Perhaps also the desire to have children. Kathleen was now 36 and the clock was ticking. What Kathleen did know was that she couldn't have it all. On the 26th of March, 1927, almost five years to the day before the Sydney Harbour Bridge was finally opened, Sydney's Labour Corps newspaper's headline read, Cupid Wins, Kathleen Butler's Retirement. After 15 years in her job, she was warmly farewelled by her colleagues. John Bradfield praised her, giving her a grandfather clock and saying her, quote, retirement would be a distinct loss to the bridge branch. On the 20th of April, 1927, at St. Mary's Cathedral, with a priest from Katoomba officiating, Kathleen and Morris got married. The cathedral bells rang a peal during the ceremony. And then they were off to New Zealand for their honeymoon. The bulletin seemed relieved that the normal order of things had been restored. Quote, Kathleen Butler, the clever girl who was secretary to Dr. Bradfield, engineer of the Harbour Bridge and the City Underground Railway, last week went the way of the lesser female, who knows not the difference between a centimetre and a centipede, except by the sting. It continued. In other words, she got married, and the pretty bronze head that is stuffed with a higher mathematic was meshed in tulle that flowed over her shoulders and formed the train of her glitteringly embroidered white satin frock. Her armlet of orchids and lily of the valley had a tiny bridge contrived in the heart of it. The Sydney Mail, which had run more than two dozen of her feature articles, ran Kathleen's portrait in the Women's World section. The caption bore her new name, Mrs. Morris Haggerty. But Kathleen and Morris's grandchildren told me it was far from a case of Cupid winning and the couple living happily ever after at Cunnamulla. While Strathlee was a prosperous property and Kathleen had servants and acted as Chatelaine, it was still a harsh and lonely outback life. In 1929, just two years after they married, the possible misogynistic horrors of such an existence were stark when, on a neighbouring property, a man shot his wife dead and then blew his brains out, leaving six children behind. Later, in family law, it would be said this happened on the day that Kathleen arrived and she saw the bodies being carried out. While this tragic murder-suicide happened a bit later, it was still, as Morris the grandson said, a bit like, welcome to Cunnamulla. Kathleen endured violence at the hands of her husband, who'd returned to the property in a drunken rage. In 1931, pregnant with their first child, Kathleen went to Sydney, where she gave birth prematurely to a daughter she'd name Anne. Little Anne had severe lung trouble and nearly died. She was put into an incubating ward at Crown Street Women's Hospital. As a report in the Australian Women's Mirror would soon say of Kathleen, quote, The bridge girl put the same energy and intelligence into the job of motherhood as she did into her secretarial job. She knew that natural feeding was essential to save her, and until she could leave the nursing home where Anne was born, express milks were sent twice daily to the mite. Then, as soon as she safely could, her mother went to the hospital to feed her. It's not clear whether Kathleen went back to Kunamala in the months following Anne's birth. But it seems not because reports of her readying to attend the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the 19th of March 1932 made it sound like she'd been in the city the whole time, learning mothercraft from the expert Dr Truby King. Her presence in Sydney stirred press interest. The Daily Telegraph headlining its report in mid-February 1932 on platform at the bridge opening, Mrs Morris Haggerty. The article began... 
quite one of the most excited people on the official stand when Mr. Lang cuts the ribbon at the bridge opening ceremony will be Mrs. Morris Hegarty, formerly Miss Kathleen Butler, brilliant secretary and right-hand man to Dr. Bradfield when the first operations on the structure were mooted. The article said that since coming to Sydney, Kathleen had seen the, quote, setting into position of the last hangar and has trodden every inch of the structure. Seeing the bridge near completion and being able to walk across it and perhaps even up and over the arches must have been magnificent for Kathleen Butler. Whatever her marital relationship was like at this time, it was all smiles for the newspapers. The Sun ran a photo of beaming mum and bub. Kathleen told the paper she was now, quote, studying babies instead of bridges. The Australian Women's Mirror article, which was titled Women and That Bridge, The Feminine Influence Behind the Great Builders, said, quote, but the girl who had led such a busy life at home and abroad says she found plenty to interest her in the new sphere. The life of the outback women to which she had to adjust herself now filled her days. She never lost touch with the bridge and added to her cuttings about its inauguration every item she could gather. In her cabinet of treasures, she placed foremost the artistic little trinket box the workers at Dorman Longs had made for her from the first piece of steel cut at the works for the bridge and the small end of the rope selected from the testings given to her by Sir Arthur Dorman. While Kathleen treasured these keepsakes, her focus now was on Anne. Quote, I realised that when my little daughter was given into my hands, it was going to be a serious business to bring her into happy, healthy infancy. I was not taking any risks in erring through ignorance, and I can assure you it was worthwhile. She continued, But believe me, I say with real feeling that the bridge job was nothing to the job of being a mother. In this, there never is a moment's let up. Kathleen was on the stand on the 19th of March, 1932, when the Sydney Harbour Bridge was opened. On that day, she was given a piece of the ribbon that had been cut first by de Groot and then officially by Jack Lang. As far as the newspaper record allows, Kathleen's views weren't sought about that day, which is a real pity because it would have been fantastic to hear what it meant to her. Kathleen returned to Kunnamulla with her baby daughter to a difficult life with a hard man. In March 1936, she was back in Sydney with Anne and a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald hinted at regret. After giving readers a brief recap of her career, the article said, quote, Although she is far removed from the bridge building in her new sphere, Mrs. Haggerty says she cannot curb her interest in the new Queensland Bridge at Kangaroo Point and feels that she, and here the paper quoted her directly, hates to be out of it all. Kathleen went back to Kunnamulla. She and her daughter Anne would sometimes have to hide in cupboards when Morris got drunk and violent. In April 1953, Anne, now about 21 and in Sydney, was being farewelled by Kathleen. Her daughter was off to England with Kathleen's sister Gladys. Kathleen would continue to live with Morris at Cunnamulla. Anne married a New South Wales grazier named John Sloan in 1956. The young couple lived with Kathleen and Morris for two years at Strathlee until they bought their own property. It was called Climax Downs at Kunnamulla, which their grandson Morris joked sounded like an orgasm in a wheat field. So they renamed it Kaiwong, believed to be an Aboriginal word for resting place. While Annie had a resting place and settled into her own life, Kathleen had now had enough of living with Morris and moved to Sydney. 
She was to live in a duplex in Neutral Bay with her sister Gladys upstairs. Kathleen and Morris didn't divorce and they remained amicable to the point that he'd stay with her when he visited Sydney. Their grandchildren, Morris and Maria Sloan, grew up in Kunnamulla. They acknowledge and speak openly about their grandfather's behaviour, but also remember him fondly for how he treated them. As Maria said, he was a bad husband, but a good grandpa. Both of them have fond memories of Kathleen, staying with her in Neutral Bay. They called her Ma, and she'd let them watch the Three Stooges on TV, the first time these country kids had seen such technology. Kathleen would also get her gardener to bring in sand and dump it all over her grass because she thought her little outback feral grandchildren would feel more comfortable with grit under their bare feet. Once they'd left, she'd have the sand removed and get her gardener to restore the lawn to its previous condition. In her late 70s, Kathleen took ill with something like dementia and she died in hospital on the 20th of July 1972, 40 years after the bridge had been opened. Her daughter Anne was devastated, but she and her husband John ensured that as they grew up, their kids Morris and Maria knew the contribution that Kathleen had made to Australian history. As for why her grandmother's not better remembered, Maria thinks it's because today a woman in such a position doesn't seem so remarkable, and many of us don't realise just how incredible it was a century ago. In 2019, though, Kathleen was celebrated in a way that she would have loved, with the permission of Morris and Maria. When Sydney Metro's fifth megatunnel boring machine arrived, it was named Kathleen in her honour. The machine's task? Digging twin metro tunnels from Barangaroo to Blues Point. After I first read about the jewellery box Kathleen was given in 1924, the first ever true Sydney Harbour Bridge souvenir... I wondered what had become of it. It was only yesterday, thanks to the magic of social media, that I found Morris Sloan and we had our chat. But he didn't know anything about the box. He suggested I speak to his sister Maria. If anyone would know, it'd be her. And when I spoke to Maria, she reassured me that yes, the box is still with her. Treasured just as Kathleen treasured it almost a century ago. Inside that box is that piece of ribbon that Kathleen was given on this day 90 years ago when the Sydney Harbour Bridge was officially opened. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Big, big thanks to Kathleen's grandchildren, Morris and Maria Sloan, for sharing their memories with me. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.